0: Welcome to Season 1 of Scientists for Social Justice, a podcast where a student and her professor discuss issues of social justice in the higher education system, especially as they relate to the scientific discipline. We highlight and discuss work done by amazing scientists from diverse backgrounds, celebrate the accomplishments of scientists from historically marginalized groups, review literature, and talk with guest speakers about actionable solutions that lead to impactful change.
1: Jayla King and I want to welcome you to the next episode of Scientists for Social Justice, where we have invited a very special guest, Dr. Brian Deuceberry, um who is currently teaching at the University of Rhode Island. And I'm really excited to have this guest on because I have known Brian now for what are we going on now? Five years or something like that? At that the school. conference we met at. Let's <laughs> I lost count too. I I did too. I'm good with Um, that
2: though. I'm good with
1: that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I lost count. Um, and I, I feel like I, I just got super lucky. Um, when I met, when I met Brian because we happened to be at the same conference and I attended one of your talks and, um, it was the American society for microbiology, uh, conference for undergraduate educators. And I attended your talk. And then we happened to wind up at the same bar later. Right. Mm-hmm. So we, I'd gone out to dinner with a with a couple of colleagues and then we, we went to go get drinks after dinner and you just showed up. Um and it, you know like you I know, feel things. like
2: you should give people some context right you make it sound as though I'm just walking around town and just walking to a bar like oh who's here <laughs> that's not what happened <laughs> all right
1: <laughs> I, I well I actually I didn't know right so I think that I think of uh, someone in the group had texted you, there you go.
2: okay good to you to probably. come join us yeah
1: um from my perspective I, I I also just sort of like randomly was there and mm-hmm. so I you had a more formal invitation than than I did probably. Um, but it was great because we, you know, we ended up talking for, for quite some time. And then I reached out about a week later about, about some questions that I had. And ever since then, I feel like, you know, we have just been chatting back and forth. Um, and in the last five years, you know, you have done some amazing work and you're doing so much faculty development work now. And uh, I just feel super privileged uh, that I get to have you in my life and that we get to have you on this podcast. And um I know that you've talked to Jayla a bunch, and so it's just a really special opportunity to to have you on our on our show. So thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Well, um Jayla, do you want to go ahead and get us get us started as you usually do?
0: Yeah, so um again, thank you, Dr. Dewsberry for joining us. Um, but just to begin to give our podcast listeners, um, a little introduction, um, to your background, um, would you mind just, you know, we want to highlight first, you know, where you were born, mm-hmm. which was, um, in San Fernando, uh, Tr- Trinidad and Tobago. And, you know, just give us some background on, you know, certain values or educational experiences that you had while you were there, you know, that you still take with you till this day.
2: Yeah. Even though it's a... Uh... I guess it's meant to be an introductory question. It's still actually kind of loaded. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yesterday, I was born in in San Fernando, Trinidad, and Tobago, which is the last Caribbean island in the archipelago. If you headed south, if you get to Venezuela, you've gone too far. um I came to the u s back in nineteen ninety nine as an international student, so I went to Morehouse college, and we could you know we can talk about that later um in in terms of my academic experiences that um I guess impact what I do now, I, I think one thing that I I feel like I've come to realize is the answer to that question changes over time. So it's it's not as though I had particular academic experiences and then, you know, because of that I'm going to go to this particular school or or have this particular major. Um, you know, from a content perspective, yes. Like I was always into science, I was always into environmental things, and so therefore I made those choices of major when I got to college. But I think if you want to broaden your view of education for a second year and you think about how you interact with your family, how you interact with your religious community, how you interact with neighbors and friends, and how your view of the world is shaped by where you grew up, that also impacts your, your academic choices and your experience once you get into college. So I, I think that aspect of it, that sort of non- in school aspect of it is something I've only begun to fully understand in my later years, perhaps in grad school as a professor. Um but frankly, Jayla, it 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 might actually be the most important part. Um and and you know, we can talk about that in some more detail later. But I I think it, it really is. It really is.
0: And so, as far as you know, you're saying you know those non-educational factors, you know, that played a role, um, a huge role, in determining you know like where you where you wanted to go, um, you know, just think about those things. How did they contribute to you know studying at a historical black college? You know, studying at Morehouse.
2: Well, okay, let me let me first about the Morehouse thing. I was coming. (laughs) You laugh already. I haven't even said my answer. Okay, I was coming from. Trinidad, and my best friend and I were looking for schools to apply to. And I kid you not, right? This is back in 1998. We were looking for schools to apply to. So at this point in time, I hate to date myself here, but we were writing physical letters requesting, like, brochures from these schools. So I think we wrote about 60-something. Yeah, we got, like, a ton of brochures in the mail. And we made our decisions to apply to colleges and universities based on two things. How nice the brochure was. <laughs> <laughs> you, I can't make this up. And who would give scholarships to international students? Yeah. So so as much as I, I love Morehouse and I, I had a good time there and, and I'm grateful for the, degree, the the degree that I received, I went there because I got a full ride. Period. I, I wasn't, I wasn't searching for the historical experience and the history. No, 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 no. Full ride. It's like, what part of tuition, room, and board is not clear to you? Right. This was the reason, and I was there on August nineteenth. Thankfully, because of that, right. So there were. I had a couple other. Um, I had a couple other scholarships, but it just were not as. You know they were partial or most of it and and you know it's something I try to explain to faculty members today, look zero dollars means zero right it doesn't mean I have some it doesn't mean like I'll get it to you <laughs> no no no, it means zero, so either I'm gonna get this thing fully paid for or I'm not coming and that was that was essentially the decision so uh, but but again, I mean that that is sort of that doesn't impact once I was there is a really engaging and, and impactful time. And I learned a lot about myself in the process, especially as an international student of color. Um, but perhaps the, the, the other part of your question about the non-cognitive side, um, it, one, one of the struggles I have, Jaila, is that a, a lot of people, when they talk about education, when they, especially at the college level, they, their mind automatically goes to content, right? Their mind automatically goes to even when I tell people I'm a professor, the first thing they will ask is, what do you teach? Right? They always want to go to the what and the, the, the subject and the thing you do your research on and where you publish. And, and I, I want to be very clear. I'm not, I'm not in no way trying to be dismissive of that. But I have always believed that education was, was about more than that. It was about finding yourself, about finding your, your sense of purpose, your sense of, of you know, what you're going to contribute to the social good. And, uh, you know, I'm a first generation college student, but student, but I think that is one thing my parents always really kind of impressed upon us is, is engaging in things in life, whether it's professional or personal in between that have a virtue to it, right? That, that was all about making humanity better, you know, by virtue of the things that you do. So, um, so, so, so I think to a certain extent growing up in that environment, when it came to things like picking a major and picking grad schools or picking the kinds of projects that I want to do now, the why is the question that drives it, not the what. So I mean I I do love the what, I love bio, I love scientific method. I mean, this is this, you know, these are things I truly enjoy. But it wouldn't really have any meaning to me if there wasn't a bigger why guiding that. So So really it's the sort of non, well, some of it happened in school as well, but I think mostly non-academic environment is what kind of helped drive that, that feeling of
0: why. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, one of the most important questions in science, you know, asking why, Mm -hmm. you know, to understand things at a deeper level and, you know, just considering, you know, this question that has really pushed you along into the field that you're in now, As you look back, what really prompted, you know, to study biology, you know, the field that you're in, like, you know, why did you decide Mm -hmm. to study?
2: So I I was an environmental hippie, like, save the world, you know, love, green, peace. That was me growing up. Um, Why that was me, I have no idea. Um, I had the privilege of being born in a very beautiful country, always outside, good weather, um, I was just that child who liked the worms and the grass and the plants and all of that stuff, right? So so that turned into a, a desire to pursue a career in environmental science. But I remember uh, a postdoctoral associate who I work with said to me, you know, I, I get that you're passionate about environmental conservation, but one of the best things you can do to save the environment is understand how the environment works. So I went to graduate school for basic biology degree, and I say basic meaning like I didn't study kind of environmental science questions. I studied questions about ecology. I was trying to understand how the system worked. So I, I had in the back of my head that my my why, right, was about how to live in harmony with the environment. But I ended up, you know, studying biology just as a, as a discipline because of that love that was driving that in the beginning. Um, And, you know, also part of it, too, just to be transparent, I suppose, the Morse college where I went to undergrad did not have an environmental science degree. They developed a minor, of which I think I was the first student to graduate with one. (laughs) Um, So that means if you wanted to do anything like biology related, you had to just be a biology major and take the same classes like everybody else. Right. So I, I think some of that has changed. But. But back then, I I just I was with everybody else who were pre med and who were pre dent and whatever else that kind of thing. <laughs> so.
0: so so did you have like certain role models? Because like as I look at it now, um, you know, like from coming from high school and going into college, there there has been people in my life who had helped me. Um, push towards like my my degree that I'm trying to get. Like, you know, my parents have played a few roles and Dr. McDonald being my advisor, she's, you know, been there to help me figure out certain things. So, you know, mm-hmm. who are your role models, um, you know, just through undergrad and even, you know, going into your graduate years?
2: Um, I actually don't have many. Um, I mean, I mean, there are people and I will name them in a second, but uh, I felt like I had a lot of allies, um, you know, which is perhaps a different way to think about that relationship than we uh, we tend to discuss. Um, I, I, I don't have a problem with the term role model, um, but sometimes I feel the term tends to cast a sense of perfection upon people who are by definition by definite, who are by definition imperfect beings, and so in in models you have to kind of embrace their imperfections as well as their strengths. And so it's it's good to kind of hold on to their strengths and have the strengths drive you towards something more perfect. But um, but at the same thing, I think it's at the same time, I think it's worth being able to cast that critical eye, right and and. I, I, You know, maybe it's just the way my pathway was set up, but I feel like I found myself in situations where I wanted something different than what the convention around me seemed to demand, right? I was in classes with mostly pre-med students. I was in grad school with people who I, I think, and, you know, no, really, I'm not trying to be mean here, but I think there was this sense of this is how you do grad school, right? And I wanted to do it a different way. So, so there are times when your behavior, I think, kind of has to run counter to what's being told to you as a norm. And you can't let the, the definition of role model hamstring your, your, your own willingness, your own resiliency, your own desire to be true to where your values lie. And sometimes that means making some tough calls, right? Right. Um, i can't tell you what those calls will be for you but i I know i definitely had to make some tough calls in my time right so i look back on my life all 41 years of it um my undergraduate college professor was definitely a mentor at the time or a role model at the time i didn't know that right at the time i worked in his lab at the time i got fired from his lab i was terrible but all of those were lessons that that i came to draw upon to ask myself some tough questions about what I wanted out of academia, what I wanted out of life, but I needed, I needed that darkness, right? Maybe not everybody was as terrible or undergrads research as Brian was, but, um, but, but sometimes you, you can find inspiration and lessons in even the most darkest moments. And so don't, don't assume that the people who were with you during that time are, are not necessarily doing role model behavior. Um, I mean my my mother is a it's a huge role, role model for me. Mm-hmm. Um, she has that like 70 times seven forgiveness thing that I you know <laughs> I was like I will never be that perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still a work in process, right? Um but but I think beneath that that ideology of, of forgiveness is one of love. This it's one of 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 you at the end of the day, no matter what you always see the better angels in people. And when you're doing work around social justice, you have to have that. You absolutely have to have that. You will be done in a week. If this is going to be centered around rage and darkness and how bad everything is, we just don't have the emotional bandwidth to to sum up that. So even, even at the darkest moments, even at times where... Man, you just wonder just decade after decade after decade of making these same arguments. You still have to be able to point to where things have changed. And I can point to places where things have changed. So so I think you know my my instinct, and hopefully this comes across when I teach and when I do faculty development, my instinct to go towards love is something I got from her and is what sustains me in in, honesty, Every professional thing I do, regardless of what it is, because um, otherwise, this, to me, this couldn't be sustainable.
1: So, Brian, like you, you've mentioned this sort of tendency towards um, towards learning lessons. Mm-hmm. And I think that you, you and I have talked a lot about these things and <sighs> you reference the darkness a lot in conversations, um, I think, with with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you mentioned a little while ago that that there are people that you've learned lessons from, or you think that there have been hard decisions that you've had to make. And I'm just wondering, like for you, what do you think are some of the hardest ones that you've had to make? Um,
2: it's hard to rank a list. <laughs> um, and perhaps it's unfortunate that there is a list. <laughs> but uh, and not not many people, Know this, um, so I guess it will now. I'll say it on a podcast, right? Uh, but grad school was tough, man. Grad school really was tough, um, and it, it 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 was tough in a way that I couldn't. I think people, even people who knew me during that time period, wouldn't have said wouldn't would would might be surprised to hear me say that because I've always been very good of giving off a very um I don't know, confident is the word, or or certain persona. And we can unpack that in a different episode, I suppose. But you know, part of it is what you do with imposter syndrome. Part of it is if you understand that um you understand that for certain identities there might be stereotypes associated with you when you walk into a room and so then you have to kind of overcompensate a bit. Um but you know I made a decision as you know laura to to really focus on on teaching and education and and all of that stuff and um and as much as I like the the basic science side of my grad school life, I was also kind of preparing for this this career the career that I have now right, and you know but I was brought up in a grad system where people didn't really understand that right um and there's there's pretty much over a century of history. Of this notion that teaching is this thing you do if you can't do the research, or it's not something that's particularly scholarly, or anybody could do it, anybody who has a PhD could do it. And um and and that that leads to people, you know, intentionally or unintentionally kind of questioning your commitment, your, your intelligence, if you could hack it, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and and so you have to I mean I'm a I'm, you know. Fortunately, I guess I had enough of a Teflon jacket or a sense of purpose around the teaching aspect that I, I could let it ultimately not bother me or at least not derail me from where I was trying to go. But on a surface level, it does cut. <laughs> it, it does cut. Like it does cut you when, when people are, are sort of openly questioning your intelligence, sometimes in front of your peers. And I would say the only thing that, 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 that kept me from just not saying, you know what, I don't need this, I could just walk away, like, by the way, so many other grad students of color, um, was that in teaching and in education, I really felt I, I found my sense of why. I really felt I found my calling. And one of the beautiful things about finding your calling, it, it, it just deflects. All that noise, right? It just you hear it, you roll your eyes, it bugs you, you know, you sit with it. It comes back up in your dreams or in your thoughts sometimes, every now and then. But but you don't stop because what you're responding to is is something greater than what other people can even conceive. And and that was a that was a real blessing to have, like to, to know that, to know that you found a space where just you know, you found that value that other people just can't even articulate, right? But, but on an everyday basis, yeah, man, it just stuff wasn't easy, you know. Obviously I'm fine now, but it certainly wasn't
1: Yeah, and so I this maybe leads into the next question that, that Jayla has, but as you you thought about things and as you made this decision and transitioned into teaching, what what was sort of the cumulative experiences that got you there, right? Like you obviously made this shift from your, your PhD in an ecological field to doing what you do now. Mm -hmm. And so for you, in spite of all the, all the small comments and the things that people would share with you. And and I think that you did a really great job of discussing these issues in, in a book chapter that Mm -hmm. you just published. Um, and there were a lot, you know, like there were, you were very transparent about the kinds of things that you experienced in, in graduate school. Um, For you, what was sort of the defining point? And, and I don't know, for me, there's often not one single momentous occasion. It's, it's sometimes something that's more cumulative than that. And so for you, like, can you describe what process you went through? Uh, Because I've, I've heard that too. Like, well, what, you know, if you're teaching, like, it's not the same thing as research, but but at least for me, I know there were a lot of things that steered me in the direction that I'm I'm currently in, and so I'm wondering what that looked like for you.
2: Um. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I I think I could, you know, at least you know, I can have a list for that too. But the the thing, to the extent that this is a thing, um, was honestly the first semester I ended up teaching, because that that wasn't supposed to happen, right? I was I was following explicit advice I was given <laughs> by by many people to avoid teaching as a, as a grad student. That's a distracting activity. It's not, you know, you needed to pay to get your stipend, you could to get your tuition waived. Is sort of that like quid pro quo with the university. But no real thought was being put behind um, cultivating, you know, skills in pedagogy. <laughs> among grad students, right? Um, so to be honest, I approached my first couple of classes with the same, I wouldn't call myself chaos, but I wasn't thinking that deeply about it. But, uh, you know, I'm a fairly social being when I'm in social company. Right? <laughs> um, and one of the things I remember was was talking to the students a lot. So, you know, you run a lab and, Depending on what the lab is, you have all this downtime. And so you just, you know, just making small talk and, and asking them questions about why they wanted to be like because most of them were pre-med, right? And I would ask them a lot about why they wanted to to pursue medicine. And first of all, I realized that many people were not asking them that question at all. Right? Like this, there was no why. There was just what do you want to do? All right. Here's a list of classes you have to take to get this degree. Make sure and take the MCATs. And I, I would hear all these really interesting stories about. Well, I would hear stories that would range from things like, "Oh, I like science, so I figured I'd do medicine." And you're like, "What? <laughs> what did you?" Do? <laughs> and but but then there was all. But then there were also things like, as a first generation American or first generation college student, I needed to pick a career. That guarantees me a high amount of economic mobility. and so these were the careers that they knew. It's not that they didn't like it per se but but there was uh, that, that external motivating factor right was huge right but you think about an 18 year old who's carrying the hopes and dreams of of mobility on their shoulders and, and so a lot of the conversations would 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 sound like that right they were they, they liked it fine enough. But they, they were doing it for all these social reasons. And then, and then they will also talk about, I don't, you know, you're at a mostly Hispanic university and you don't see many professors who are not white. It starts making you, it starts to make you wonder about, well, do we just not do this? <laughs> right? So this, and it's important to, to, to tell the story, Laura, because for two reasons. Number one, a, a lot of times... People, you know, faculty will ask about, you know, what strategies to use and what are the best practices. And, and one of the things I say, look, man, some of your best data sets are sitting right in front of you. You don't need to run to every single conference and workshop. You could, like, talk to them, <laughs> right? You could ask them a question or two, and and you, you'd be surprised what you hear when you give them that voice, right? The The, the second thing is there's this... Kind of, uh, there's this gap, this discrepancy between what we thought we designed as an academic experience and what we assumed students should be getting from it, and what students were hoping to get from the experience. Right. So it's not to say that students didn't expect to learn biology, but but the biology was really, uh, it was completely utilitarian. Right. The biology was something you needed to get to the thing you really wanted. Right? And 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 I'm not naive here. I'm not saying like we all just want to go to college just to love learning. I, I get it. We want jobs, we want careers, I get that. That's that's fine. But since nobody really understood that or knew that or thought to ask that, we were doing these things from a curricular perspective, somehow assuming that just by virtue of talking about, I don't know, butterflies or trees or cells or whatever, that the love of it. Will cultivate itself. <laughs> and so it, it it opened my eyes, I guess, you know, to to just what edu- well, okay, let me put it a different way. It opened my eyes to how much education, at least in the biology classes, how much it wasn't speaking to the individual. It was ultimately at the end of the day, even with all the active learning stuff, it was still about delivery. It was still about, I have a bunch of stuff to tell you. I'm going to either tell it to you over 20 PowerPoint slides three times a week, or I'll tell it to you with a bunch of quizzes. Like, and I, I'm not hating, man. I'm, I'm con- I do like content. But if it was just going to be that, you're missing all the other reasons why people get into to careers and passions and values and life and what it speaks to and speaks to their future and how it helps them build agency and i And I saw in that what I missed in my own education um I saw what my students were missing um I saw a place where i felt i felt i humbly say I felt I could contribute and i I vowed to do exactly that right to to hope to to make that contribution from that point until you know until now and whenever I'm still kicking in a university. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I think like one of the reasons that I that I was really excited about having you on is because when you and I have talked, it's it's not about the classroom intervention, right? It's not about the pedagogical approach. In fact, I think, I can't remember whether, I want to say that you've done this work, but I've seen it a couple of times, which is that you can throw all the active, engaged learning that you want at a classroom environment, but- if the faculty member is still not totally involved with the students, those are not going to work, right? So, and, and I think that I, I want to say that I've, I've seen you present that work, and I think I've seen it presented in other contexts as well, which is that, like, just saying, like, here, do the engaged thing, that's actually <laughs> – that, that doesn't work, right? Like, ah, if we just put people in groups. They'll learn better. Or, if we just do the think pair share stuff, they'll learn better. Um, and it, it's not about that, And one of the things that I've heard you say a lot and over and over again is you teach people, right? Like, yeah, you're giving them some content, but what you're actually doing is that you're supposed to be teaching people. Um, and then the content, if you're if you're teaching people well, then the content becomes easier to to take in by individuals, and so uh. I think the next questions that, that we had put together are questions that get at this kind of, it's just a mindset for you, right? Which is, I'm going to teach people first, and then I'm going to work on helping them with whatever subject it is we're talking about. Because we could be talking about any subject. <laughs> and as long as I'm remembering that they're people first, then, then we can do that. And one of the things that I want people to understand about the way that you go about your practice is that this is literally how you wake up and you do it every single day. Um, and it's—I think it's a very intensive process, but the outcomes from it are are just astounding. And I want to give people a sense of what they can kind of expect when when they would walk into a classroom that looks like yours. Um, this is actually like one of my my goals as a sabbatical, right? Is to come visit you wherever you happen to be and just watch you mm-hmm. do what you do for a period of time. Um, you know, like I get that sense just talking to you as, as a friend and as a colleague, or you know when we're at conferences discussing things like this is something that I feel very inherently just talking with you one on one but i I'm eager to see what that looked like in the context of a classroom
2: Well, I mean, it certainly would depend on the day you decide to show up right um, and you know we, we take some amount of pride in the diversity of what we do on a given on a, on a daily basis. <clears throat> uh, the goal is the learning outcome, right? We 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 agree on what those are, what it should look like, what we hope happens at the end of the semester. Uh, we do our due diligence to figure out where students are at academically, psychologically, socially, and you know. I, a large part of what we do when we choose a strategy and and everything we do um, has to do with has to do with engagement. Um, you know, I think it's Jose, Jose Antonio Bowen who said in his book, Teaching Naked, that he wants to design a class where when a student gets up in their dorm, in their bedroom at home, at the community campus, whatever, that they want to be there. Right, I don't. I don't give points for attendance. I don't punish people for not coming. I want to know that when you get up, you understand very clearly that this is going to be a value-added experience. I don't even penalize people for going on their phone. Um, check to see if they're on the right website. We designed the class so you don't want to go on your phone. <laughs> you don't want to check this. We have fifty minutes. All right. And I want you fully present in that 15 minutes. And I'm thinking a little bit about, about myself because, to be honest, Laura, I'm sure you would agree with me. We've been to conferences. We've been to Yeah. Okay. I'm done here. Let me see what's up, uh, <laughs> what the scores are in, in English. So, so I, I'm and I'm not trying to absolve people of, of you know, I know it's the age where everybody's on their phone, et cetera. But I want to put it on my shoulders, right? So, So, some of that, some of that is... Yes, you know, we want them physically engaging in the activity. You want to, you know, formative assessments and formative practice writing and, and graphical. Yes, there's all of that. But for me also, it's the intangibles, right? It's, it's the work I put in on speech prep. It's the work I put in understanding nonverbal cues, right? You know, there are friends of mine who are professors of theater, and we talk about that. We talk about how to read a room how to sense how the energy is shifting. Right. And this is a class of one hundred and fifty-five, So it's not, I mean, I know there are classes that are bigger, right. But I'm saying like, this is not a small class thing, right? This is, this is, I'm scanning and looking at every eye. So, so there, there's, there's some, there's some theater, there's some, there's a performative aspect to this that particularly in science education, people feel almost embarrassed or ashamed to talk about because then it gets into this where you're not serious right this is this is, I, I, you know me man i don't i don't sign up for that um this is so this is the whole teaching people are not subjects thing because i understand what it means to be in a space and have your senses aroused as part of that experience right and i understand once i once i once those senses are peaked and you're present you're more willing to engage with me on what I'm going to ask you to do. So that can happen a variety of ways, right? That could be uh, the ways in which we do quizzes, the way we do, you know, we have a process called each one teach one where students explain things and have their colleagues um, critique them. Sometimes they do writing assignments, but then sometimes it's it's the storytelling, right? It's the griot tradition that I bring with me from my culture that, that I apply to how I talk about different aspects of science, whether it's kind of you know the technical details of things or how those things are contextualized into bigger stories. Um, all of those things come to bear, come to kind of service the, the vibe and the climate that we want in the classroom. So it, 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 it becomes problematic I think for some people because a lot of us are wired and i'm not trying to pick on science education here but i will I wired to, to find that thing that you could that you could reduce the number you know <laughs> right that you could you can go to university of x and say if you do this at a four to five level then voila change will happen and and that's just never been how my brain thinks about education and thinks about that experience because To me, if it's essentially a human experience, it is by definition, inexact. It is by definition, nuanced. It is by definition, different every time you have a new crop of students. So, so I'm not, I'm not interested in finding that grand theory that will explain every class, every time I teach it, no matter who's in front of me, no matter what institution, I'm interested in you who's in front of me right now. (laughs) Right? So... Maybe a little bit different, you know. Sorry, it's a long answer to your question about my class, but I think the, I think the context was important.
0: No, Doctor Dewsbury, I think that um, you know what you said is very important. Um, just considering the way that you um, approach teaching a classroom full of students, you know that may go past a hundred um, plus. But you know, just considering what you said about teaching being your calling and how basically it's something that you're responding to that others can't really see how great of a calling it is to you. And I think that is very important um, for students now as they try to f- figure out what they want to do, you know, what they want to study, you know, let it be something that they're called to do and not something that they feel pressured into doing because, you know, maybe the benefits that it may provide in the later run. And in reading one of your articles titled "Of Deep Teaching in a College STEM Classroom, um, you stated that. What inspires you most about teaching is not the dispensation of information, but the awakening of the soul. And so considering this, for, from a teaching standpoint and for other teachers who may be listening to our podcast, what advice would you give to them in awakening the soul of their students?
2: Um, well, the first advice I would give is to ask the students to reflect on where their soul is currently. Um. And and hopefully share that reflection with you, right? So what I I use this I believe assignment which I believe I talked about in that paper as well. And and you know if you look at the prompt for that assignment, it has nothing to do with biology or STEM or nothing like that. It's it's just about asking yourself your sense of why, your sense of um you know what are the values that drive your deepest passions, right? And I think um. I think that you know asking that essay prompt to begin the experience is an important um important an important way to set the tone for how we are going to cultivate this relationship over the next three months and perhaps beyond um, i've I've kind of given this spiel a lot and over the years yeah. thankfully a few professors have started to consider that assignment and and I've been amazed at how many have written and said, "Man, you know, I didn't know what to expect, but goodness!" And that's sort of how it is, right? <laughs> that, that is, that is, it, it 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 humanizes the students in ways that you don't anticipate. And then now, when you when you're responding to them with your curriculum, you're responding to them as as people with with hopes and dreams and preferences, and you you you, you tie some of what you're reading, you know, to, to, to the way in which not necessarily content per se, but how you engage them, how you how you build that trust with them. Um, the the kinds of things you talk about in individual meetings and, and, and student hours, should you have those? Um, it, it really is the first step. Now the, the the other thing I will say though, Jayla is and this this gets difficult because Right now, we have an education structure in higher ed that that sort of discretizes. <laughs> it kind of it 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 puts your 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 progression into these interesting lumps, right? By lumps, I mean semesters, right? So you you start a class and it ends in three months. You take a couple of weeks break and you start another class or classes and ends. In, so so what happens with that? What people don't realize what happens with that is you start thinking. That things that you get from that class experience that are of value can be fully operationalized and measured within that same time period. And and you, I mean, you can just spend two minutes thinking about that and realize that's ridiculous, right? You <laughs> like it, it takes like you never know when this light bulb is gonna go off, right? So, but but what the problem is if everything's gonna come back to, and this is to your question about. Professors wanted to awaken the soul, um, because what, what tends to come with that question was how do I know? Like how do I know, you know, I did that? It's like well, you, you might have to be okay with not knowing, right? You know, sometimes that spark would, would would click when they become a junior or when they have left your university. You know, they may be an F on your roster, but 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 something they got something else they got about themselves through that failure process or whatever could have benefited them in ways that could be even more impactful than an A. But we don't have a a system right now that that measures that in that way. And if it's not, if it's not, does A, B, C, D, E, F thing and, you know, graduation rates and what you do, you know, again, those things have their value. But when we start talking about things like awakening of the soul, I'm playing the long game. I'm playing the long game, right? And you know, I I it took me onto my third degree to find my calling. Why would I think they'd find this in intro bio, right? <laughs> right? So it's uh, but 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 having said that, I I still believe it's important that you're teaching. Is is trying to speak to that, right? Is getting them to enjoy a subject matter, but also explore the ways and way the ways in which they can they will live beyond themselves and you know live for others and contribute to society, even in the context of physics or chemistry or history, whatever it is.
1: Yeah, and so we're we're gonna come back to <laughs> to your vision for uh, higher education uh-huh. as a whole, because mm-hmm. I I know that you you and I have have talked a fair amount about the idea that a, a lot of the systems that we rely on maybe maybe could be restructured. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from time to time, you and I have have talked about the idea of re-envisioning just higher education as a whole. Yeah. So we're going to come back to that because mm-hmm. uh, I, I want to hear more about that. But um, in in one of the, the papers that, that you've written, you mentioned that you use something called deep critical pedagogies that both address unequal power structures and give voice to those typically not shaping social narratives. Um, and so I, I think that these pedagogies, they, they have a number of names in the literature and um, but I'm I'm wondering if you can give our listeners just sort of a snapshot of of what that looks like in in your classroom. Like if I were to visit your class on an average day, what what might I expect to find? Um, you know, because I've seen you do some pretty interesting things uh, from taking questions in the middle of class through a through messaging um, to, to the assignment that that you reference um, to, to playing music like I've seen you. I've heard and talked to you about a number of things that you do in your class. And so maybe can you, can you give a snapshot of what, what you mean when you say these deep critical pedagogies uh, just for our listeners who might not be as familiar with some of the things that you're talking about?
2: Right. Well, let me, let me try to give this a bit more context that that way, hopefully what I say gives a bit more insight into how I think about this. Right. So somebody of the scholars on, On um, inclusive teaching and education for equity and things like that, um, uh, draw a very clear relationship between the education process and democracy. And in my mindset of teaching students and not subjects, I I draw a similar line, right? I I enjoy. I feel I need to keep saying this almost as a point of defense, (laughs) but I enjoy biology. I enjoy talking about it. I enjoy learning more about it. Um, But in the context of teaching a class, what I actually really enjoy is is the way in which, the the, the falsifiable way in which we see the world and try to understand its processes are a lens through which we can understand other aspects of our civilization, including our democracy, right? So... When, when i am asking students to you know not just do a b c and d when i'm asking them to write an answer and have their colleague or their roommate critique it i am in my mind you know walking them through the process of critical dialogue right of of, of being able to articulate a position and, and know it because you can explain it but also defend it right <laughs> um i'm thinking of of how you how you go into wider society and and you know, how you do things like make a voting choice, how do you make a, a purchase choice? How do you make a partner choice? I mean, all of these things, like what, what are you drawing on to make these decisions? And what tools can my classroom provide you or help you with so that so that those are things that, that can help you know further your thinking, but also you know, help you be be part of that collective response, social responsibility, right? So, to the extent that power is is, you know, can mean the ability of someone else to define your reality for you. There are things we can do in the classroom that 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 provides that helps the students cultivate that agency, so that so that that defining process gets hold you know you you're not i'm not just going to accept what you say just because you have a shiny suit on i'm not just going to accept what you say because it's a major news website i'm not just going to accept what you say because you know this is the way my parents voted all my life and so you know i've sort of been brought up in that in that political or ideological world right when I talk about safe spaces in my class, I mean respectful spaces. I mean, I want your sacred cows challenged. I want you to hold it up to scrutiny, but we can do that and still respect your humanity. So, so, so the critical piece, sometimes it's, it's taken to mean, you know, fractious debate. <laughs> um, but what we mean is to, to take the reality of the world we live in and have lived in and that lives before us, dissect it to smallest pieces, to the best we can, apply our biological and ethical lens to the problems and, and the, the, the solutions that came about at different time periods, including today, and then consider, should we become scientists or citizens in the future? How will we engage this, this material, this discipline? How will we engage others with similar types of problems should we be in that situation? So these these are these are perhaps more meta questions, but it's it's I, I think it's important to think at that level, right? If if you are going to have these aspirational goals for your class,
1: you gave me permission that we could we could ask the meta questions. <laughs> I asked explicitly, and you said it was okay.
2: Permission? I'm kidding. Yes, yes, you
1: can.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, Dr. Deisbury, um just listening to you about, you know, the things that teachers can bring to the classroom to Mm -hmm. further, you know, apply this deep teaching to the classroom. And I know it's been more focused on like what teachers can do, but like as a student myself, is there something that we can do to engage more into the classroom and, um, you know, further our knowledge, not from just the content, but, you know, from, you know, things that you already listed, you know, things that are outside of just educational things.
2: Yeah, I mean I I feel like my answer is about to put the responsibility back on this teacher again, but um I feel like one of the things I have to convince students of every year, especially at the intro level, is is how much ownership they can they can take of the of the academic experience. Um and and I think that's Partly a marketing thing. Um, sometimes there's this sense of you sign up for X and therefore you have to do these prescribed behaviors in order to navigate 120 credits. And then if you do it according to what we say, then we we'll reward you with a degree. And that's the that's the arrangement, right? Um, but at, at most college campuses now, there is so much. There are so many opportunities to. Interrogate yourself, explore yourself, reinvent yourself, whatever the case might be, that you know, from a quote-unquote deep education perspective, um my advice would be to sit and really itemize almost what all those what all those experiences are, right? For example, I fully believe that for many undergraduates the most meaningful aspect of the college education did not happen inside a classroom. It happened on a study abroad trip. It happened volunteering in a research lab. It happened running a volunteer organization doing community health. It happened in the offices of people like Dr. McDonald cultivating that relationship. Like when you, you know, eight, 10 years from now, there's actually data to prove this you're not going to really remember the DNA-based pairing. Like, that was cool, right? But you'll see that a hundred times. That's not the thing you'll remember about being at your particular institution. It's going to be the things, the non-cognitive things that, that did provide some cognitive benefit, but it gave it meaning. So so to me, how you want to backward design from that knowledge is to, to really... Just take advantage of what's available to you. I mean, there are things students don't know at many universities, mine included, you know, even on significant financial aid packages, it costs, sometimes it's actually cheaper in some cases to study abroad than it is to stay local. But students don't know that, right? You know, so many of my students, they assume or oh, will somehow I'll take a couple of classes or I'll get a job. There are internships that are paying you above what you make at Home Depot. Don't know that. Right, and so some of this, some of this hidden curriculum things, um, I think it's on us to make it more explicit. Um, but since you asked, I'm telling you, right, that that these these are the ways in which you broaden what this these four, five, six years, or however long it takes, this is how you broaden what it can offer you. You 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 talk to you know mentors and advisors. You you. Ask yourself, you know, things of your why and your own sense of purpose. And you literally kind of look around the school and figure out what's being offered that allows you to do more of that exploration. And You'll, you'll be amazed at what you find.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Dr. Duesbury, I think that's, you know, one thing that you highlighted in your article on deep teaching is that, you know, not trying to put everything on the teachers, <laughs> you know, like there are many you know, other spaces on campus right. that can help students, you know, with, mm-hmm. you know, if they're struggling in a class or if they need counseling services, you know, so many other things that they can reach out to that will allow them to have access to things outside of the classroom. And one thing that I think, you know, it's important that you highlight is, you know, that relationship bu- relationship building, you know, cultivating those rela- relationships. And, you know, as principal investigator of the C's program, okay. um, what are some of the projects that, you know, that you have worked on, you know, even like including your students that you see as being like the most impactful and really allowing students to get outside of the classroom and learn more from what they can get in, you know, in a classroom setting? You mean the
2: projects that allow, the projects that focus on some of the non-classroom type things that we're yes, interested sir. in? Yeah. Um. Which one? (laughs) Uh, So we we have some, you know, we had a few interesting projects around, um, you know, how science is communicated to the general public and, you know, some of the elitism and biases we've bring bring to that process and and the, the outcomes of that. In terms of how decisions get made and inclusive inclusion and governance at the community level, um, we we have a really unique and powerful mentoring program with um, a high school in 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 inner city Providence um, that is doing a, a sort of a near near peer mentoring model um, where you know you know it's good for Brian to be a scientist and a, a professor, but Sometimes it's more powerful to see somebody who is three years your senior in a research lab, doing well, coming from a similar background, um, can can tell you and advise you in ways that that Brian, you know, won't be as attuned to just because the, the gap is just that much larger. Um, honestly, the next wave of projects you know, maybe better answers your question because as much as I, I love the classroom and I, I want, things to be different and, and we have a good amount of data on, on on how our approach can yield better outcomes at least academically well and socially as well. What what I'm more concerned about is the systemic systemic structures that govern that, right? So, you know, how are the people who, you know, the faculty members who write curricula and teach these classrooms, how are they rewarded? How are they hired? How are they supported? What kind of professional developments are available to them? And how is, how does that get reflected when they get promoted or not get promoted um and I mean that could be a whole other podcast but it's 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 quite exciting because if you if you can reshape how the levers are pulled the impact you will have will be much more far reaching than if if you just try to keep converting individual people i'm not saying to stop doing the individual thing but i'm saying the 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 opportunity for broader impacts is just that much larger
0: so yeah and you know just so we can wrap up things we don't want to keep you too long but
2: for you guys it feels like it's like we just started
0: (laughs) but as you think about um just everything that you've highlighted you know across our podcast how do you see the reframing of higher education you know the changes that can be made and you know, what guidance would you give to those who are actually practicing these kinds of deep teaching inside of their classroom?
2: Um, This for me is an area that is ripe for disruption. Um, Higher education has a long history of relegating teaching as the ugly stepchild of the research agenda, even at supposedly liberal arts institutions. I want to be very clear, I'm not anti-research, but how we communicate value can be reflected in the way we structure salaries, the way we provide um, professional development, how we choose to evaluate it, what we choose to privilege in the evaluation process. Um, so it's one thing to put out a statement and and have a strategic plan and all these things and talk about how much you love education. It's another thing to reflect that in your governance structure. So, in, if you're asking me about my vision for higher education, I'm. I'm I am look, I'm either looking to see or looking to help create a governance structure that accounts for the sophistication I, I would like to see at all levels of the pathway. So I mean in, in terms of the preparation of people to be teachers in higher classrooms, even how it's discussed at the undergrad level. So then now when you're hiring, you can look for that sophistication because you're preparing people with that. And you can hold them accountable for these practices because they were high with the evidence that they had that training, they had that development. And then we can bring our expertise to bear and thinking about how do you have a supportive evaluative model that allows people to be on a journey, you know, uh, uh, you know, with these practices. And I say journey because you don't want to get into like you have to do these five things, and if you do only two things, then you're fired. No, this for people who work in K twelve education, they they were telling this is just not how this stuff works. So there are ways to do this that accounts for the nuance, that accounts for the mistakes, that accounts for the learning process. You know all of that, but but still, but still provides enough data to allow for a meaningful promotion process. Um, and then. And then the salary structure needs to reflect all of them. So, so it, what one problem I've seen is, is a lot of times when people talk about teaching reform, they get at kind of one thing on that list I just gave you, right? So that one thing might be, oh, we'll do workshops for faculty, right? But they are not going to talk about hiring. Or, or we're going to hire more full-time, you know, prof- full-time lecturers or full-time teaching professors. We're, we're not going to talk about how they evaluate it. But they'll talk about how they, you know, we'll change the evaluation system. But we're not going to hire differently. So you you have to actually put all of those things on the table if you're talking about real reform. And it's hard. It's politically hard, right? This is like a hundred-plus-year history of of this mentality, of, of this if-you-can-do, if-you-can-teach not type thinking, right? And so, you know, is it getting a little bit better? Yeah, it is. It is, be, to be fair. I've seen some a few impressive attempts out there that that, that I think you know consider as examples, but we have a long way to go. We have a long way to go
1: yeah so i I think you've hit the the nail on the head, and you know i I like to think eventually <clears throat> our our audience won't just be students or it won't just be be educators, but um. For people who are are thinking about this model and, and this sort of reform idea, again, I, I want to highlight that, that whenever I've talked to you about teaching, this is not just a, oh, we're going to try this technique or this approach. This is a completely different way of viewing the teaching process. Um, but, but what guidance do you give perhaps to either faculty or, or to administrators who, who really want to start going down this path, right? So for the faculty who is, who is new to inclusive pedagogies, who is new to these deep pedagogies, because um, again, it, it's not just like a suite of things that you throw at your classroom. You throw at your college and, and you hope they work. Um, what guidance do you give to them? Like, How do you tell them to start <coughs> going on that journey?
2: Well, it, it it depends on who and I and I want to be sensitive to the people with whom I have these conversations because as as I kinda of indicated to you in the last answer, um all of these things have a context. And so it's it you can't just go up to somebody and and say, like, Yeah, you know, let's transform everything, but then they are at a politically precarious position at the institution where doing something really radical can be borderline reckless. Um, and, and you know, everyone will make a decision on how radical they want to be, um, how much risk they're willing to take in the name of, of this morality, but I also understand that people have mortgages to pay and children they would like to put in college. And so, you know, that that's, let's put all of that on the table, right? All of that is part of that calculation. So I think there are two separate conversations that happen right one is the personal growth conversation and waking people up to things that they had never thought would be a factor in education you know as as exemplar as example by the process they got it trained in stem teaching or whatever um so you know why does redlining matter right what does the gi bill matter right why does um you know the, the the hiring of you know the hiring of genders matter all those things. So so there's some revelation that comes with just literally reading about these things and understanding what the history of these things are. But but then there's also you know what happens on the institutional change level, right? Um, in in many institutions, the, the good news I suppose is that there's typically not one person <laughs> who, 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 who's willing to take a deep teaching approach. Right. And in some of the better examples, there's, there's a few and it's a little bit of a critical mass, right? So my advice is, okay, organize, right? Like band together and, and share your ideas, discuss your principles and start with like small projects. Right. But the, the important thing is to assess, make sure you are gathering data about what you're doing, because in two or three or four or five years, when you want to have that, in, that, that conversation with your provost or with your chair, you are not just saying like, this is the ethical thing to do because Dr. McDonald somewhere in Arkansas did this and look at her class. No, you say, no, here at this institution, here's what we change and here's how it has impacted the students. And if that's a positive impact, now the question then should be how do you scale that? But you can't talk about scaling if you don't have pilot data. So you, you might have to, it might have to be organic, right? It might be, and, and the thing with educational research is it's comparatively relatively cheap. So, so it, it hopefully is something that could be funded internally or the small grants or something like that. Um, but you want to have a goal of collecting evidence, local evidence, for what you're doing, and then have a plan for when you get that evidence, if you get that evidence, what does scaling look like, right? So don't just go to the provost and say, all right, we did it, now let's scale it. Sometimes you have to, my friend, Michelle, likes to say manage up, right? You have to go with them and say, and here's what scaling looks like, if we're serious, right? We are expert and tuition driven, I really hope we're serious, right? If you really wanna bring those retention numbers, uh, sorry, um, put those retention numbers up, we should be serious. So it, it's, it's gonna take a little bit of that, right? So I think there's a, there's a personal change aspect, but then there is the coalition of the willing who, who act as not just support structures for each other, but also that, that group that then makes the case scientifically and And generating and starts the conversation about what does this look like if it were to spread into policy into hiring into more classrooms, et cetera, et cetera
1: I love that
0: well, Dr. Dewsbury, um you know, just in closing, just reflecting on um everything that we have discussed in this conversation, is there anything that just, and this could be anything that you would like to share with, you know, our professors and um, students that you see as being crucial to any higher ed environment. Um,
2: one thing. What's one thing, Gila?
1: <laughs> we said anything. We didn't restrict it to just one.
2: <laughs> you did. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Um. Well, okay, I'll I'll say this thing because I think it's, I think it's timely actually. I, I first of all want to wish all of our listeners good health, and that hopefully that we are, hopefully we are on our way out of the pandemic, and hopefully that many of you, if not already vaccinated, will be soon, and at some point, um, for those of us who are like myself and really enjoy being physically on campus and being physically in a classroom, I, I hope we can do that in a way that resembles what we did back in February of 2020. And, and should that point happen, should that day come, I, I hope we don't just simply return to what we did before the pandemic started. I hope that in this, you know, year and a half of fairly unusual pedagogy and curriculum structures and university life, I hope enough of us, amidst all the stress and all the chaos that happened as a result of it, I hope enough of us took a step back and re-realized the importance and the value of that physical space and the importance and value of caring for each other's humanity first, before we think about all the cool stuff we want to talk about. Cause I mean there was there was a time, I mean, you know, things are way better now, but there was a time, you know, April, May 2020. Like we didn't know how this was gonna end. <laughs> you know, we we did not know, right? We were People were stressed out. And those of us who were successfully able to check our feelings at the door in a normal year, this wasn't that year. <laughs> and so we had to, we, we tapped into something different that, that we never had to. And, and maybe for me, it's a little bit sad that it took COVID, it took George Floyd, it took all these things to, to bring us in, out into a new Kind of academic space that recognizes the value the the, the primacy <laughs> of humanity over everything and I hope we don't forget that it's not about reducing rigor it's not about hand holding it's, it's, it's no it's not a it's not counter to any of those goals it's saying that Education, by definition, is an interactive human process. Even if it's online, even if it's hybrid, or it's still a human interactive process. So a chief goal of our craft should be to understand what goes in that to humanity in different contexts before we get to the cool stuff. So that, that's my hope. I hope that counts as one thing. What do you think? So, <laughs> Gina's like, I should have given up my time limit. Uh,
1: <laughs> no. No, I actually, so, I mean, obviously, we, for our listeners, right, we, we do write a, a set of questions. And I, when we originally scheduled this podcast, I thought we had scheduled it for like 50 minutes. And I said, One five? if we could do that. Yeah. If, no, five zero. Oh, okay. Five zero. Um, <laughs> And I, I told Jayla, I said, We're, "We can't do this in fifty minutes. There's, there's no way. We'll get through like two of the questions on there in fifty minutes. This is not going to work." Um, and so you never have any time limit, uh, Brian. And uh, I just want to say thank you for joining us on our on our show, thank you. and thank you for giving us the time because you always have just incredibly impactful words, um, and it's always something that makes me excited to get back to the classroom. It, it makes me excited to think about institutional and transformational change, and it's also just really inspiring to hear you, to hear you speak. Um, so I want to say personally thank you very mm-hmm. much for giving us the time this evening, especially as we, I know that we're it into the 7 o'clock hour for you at home. <laughs> um, Completely uh, with it. Uh, no, I, I really appreciate it. It's been fantastic.
2: No, thanks for having me. And um, I, um, I guess you could tell I do enjoy having these conversations. And I, and I think it's, I don't, at least I hope I don't come across as, as this being didactic or teaching. Um, to me, it's almost as though I, I continue to articulate my own sense of why when people like yourself and Jayla um, push me to do so. Um, so I talk about it, but I think I also live that process in a sense. And so um, so I guess I'm, that's me, my way of saying I appreciate the opportunity. So
0: it's my
1: pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Guiswere. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And we wish you a very good evening. Um, we don't want to you back from from sharing an evening with your family so you mentioned you have two kids at home um and we've heard them from time to time so we're gonna let you get back get back to them and yeah maybe we we'll have to have you on again sometime talk a little bit more in depth about some of these topics that you've mentioned so you i think you've said a couple of times like we could do two or three podcast <laughs> episodes just based on some of the things that we've been chatting about so thanks so much my pleasure For more information on Hendricks College, please join us at hendricks.edu or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Hendricks College. Thanks for listening.